Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Hal H. Harris is a writer, but he's not just any writer. When Medium announced its writer's challenge, he read about it, the cash prices, and his team panel of judges. He quickly committed to winning the damn thing. And you know what? He won the damn thing. Senor Hal Harris, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing all right, sir. Living the dream on this Sunday. And thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, look, let me tell you, any medium, medium is a huge place. And for you to, to, for you to make yourself write that well, that you became the winner of this award, I think it speaks well about your writing. Tell me a little bit about yourself. So my name is Hallie Charis. I'm the founder of Establishing 1865, where we explore Black personhood. If there was a quote that describes my writing, it will be one that I wrote in regards to exploring the career of Sade. How do Black people live and love in the West? a civilization that did not have our living and loving in mind when white people created it through the triangle trade and slavery. So with that approach, I write established in 1865 with a disciplined and cultivated disinterest in the inner lives of white people, and also as a way to create and be a custodian for black folklore and black political thought. Now you are a member of a, a, a recently created group called Writers and Editors of Color and I became a member of the group because I, I tell you what, I met a whole lot of inspirational people, uh, people that I have learned from in just listening to their stories. And in, in doing so, I realized that there is an unexploited form. I mean, there's an unexploited big bastion of writers that many times are ignored. And in your case, you kind of got yourself above the crop in winning this award but there are so many good writers out there that simply go uh, unnoticed. And, and I said, when I joined that group, I wanted to do my very infinitesimal point to make a difference with, uh, with, that, with that group of folk, because uh, I, like I said, it's been inspirational. Well, one, Roberto, your contributions to the cohort have not been small. It's actually been very large and really just our writings out to the world, because again, a lot of woke is from the leadership of Allison Gaines, who you interviewed earlier, and she literally was just DMing writers of color and medium at random, like, hey, I want you to be part of this community. Hey, I want to do this together. And just as part of the cohort, a community of Black writers rooted in Black liberation, but coming from different perspectives, former financiers, graduate students, me, a leader, uh, a trainer of school leaders by day, when I put on my superhero cape, a writer of Black personhood at night. You are doing such an important part of number one, getting a work out there into the world, and number two, really promoting that mindset that we do need to own our work, so that way we don't have to compromise on our political vision when we write. Well, you know what, I'm, I'm going to tell you, listening to a young person like, like you, um, uh, in, in, inside of woke, that it, it just metastasized in the mind how our new generation is out there uh, taking command, getting away from a society, a, a sort of a capitalist society that monopolizes just on your intellect and not give anything back. So look, thank you for being here. Now, you, I, I wanted to ask you a whole lot of questions, right? You won $10,000 in this particular, uh, in, in the Medium Award. And, I, and jokingly, I asked you, hey, what did you do with the $10,000? Please tell our audience your answer. I put that money towards my son's daycare. Daycare is about $1,000 a month. And therefore that provided us a way just to really subsidize that to make sure 
that he's getting the socialization education that he needs, which is why I'm also excited about the daycare subsidies that's inherent in the Build Back Better bill for Joe Biden, that that's going to significantly bring down the cost of daycare and allow more American families to keep more money in their pocket and therefore provide a sense of stimulus to the average American family. Now, interestingly, Hal, um, you won $10,000. You were able to do that. So you got your, to put it bluntly, you got that, that necessary assistance that, that to, to help out. I mean, daycare is very expensive in this country. Many countries have subsidies or in fact, it's a part of their, it's a part of their social safety net to ensure that children are, are well taken care of. We as a country always preach that we believe in, uh, we believe in life. We believe in taking care of our own, yet we never have these policies that support that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your writings on these issues? So the main reason why we do not have like a daycare policy is because whiteness does not believe we are distributing its wealth to black people. Anti-blackness is the foundation of this nation and blackness, what a lot of people think, is not the response to whiteness. Whiteness is the response to the blackness that has always been here on the American continent and has always been to what white people consider the antithesis of the American experiment. We are not. We are the necessary completion of the American experiment. So Heather McGee, who wrote The Some of Us, wrote a lot about this, that in any sort of policy in which will benefit the entire nation, white people politically and historically have refused to do it because they believe it will benefit black people who they do not see as who do, who they do not see as deserving. A lot of my writing is number one, ignoring the inner lives of white people as they make their decisions. I'm not interested in the emotional contortions or the self-rationalizations they make for their behavior. I'm only interested in what they do and how what they do impacts black personhood. And then talking about black personhood, how we live and love in the West and how we construct lives of joy of meaning and our folklore within that crucible. Now, I, I think there's something I, I want you to touch on Heather McGee because Heather McGee wrote a very important book that became, I, I believe it was a bestseller because she actually showed the irrationality of, uh, of many in the majority population, the white population hurting themselves because they think supporting policies that support us all because it supports people that look like you and me uh, they would rather go without than to see any benefits to, to, to put it bluntly, some of the folks who actually built the country. Mm -hmm. I would not say, Eduardo, that it's irrational, that white people have actually very rational reasons for denying themselves a part of the pie that would help everyone by helping black personhood. It is because, again, whiteness is the response to blackness. And as Frank Walderson wrote in Afro-Pessimism, that black suffering is the tonic that helps to maintain white mental health. They have to see us going without, so that way they feel secure in their place in the American hierarchy. So it's a price that they are willing to pay. And that is also deeply rooted in a lot of how slavery evolved in the South in the antebellum period, that as long as we have slavery here, at least the poorest white person can never be a slave and they can claim that sort of liberty to experience kinship and community, even with plantation owners. It is rooted in power. And what is especially devious about how America was founded was that power was encoded not in class, but in this made up thing called race, which does not exist biologically or genetically. So again, white people is not irrational, they're not behaving irrationally when they refuse to share the wealth of the nation with black people. They're doing it for very rational reasons to protect both their power and their psychological health. 
Now, uh, let, me, let me do a little challenge in here because I, we talk a lot about this on, on Politics Done Right. And what you've articulated, first of all, uh, is, is we, we've expressed it a little bit differently and I want you to help me out here. Um, th there's this phrase that people use, I will tolerate anything because at least I am not black. That's one, one way some people look at things. Another thing is what the uh, former Johnson had to say, uh, and I think you know that that phrase about I, I, I can I can take a dollar away from anyone as long as I'm doing something. To uh, do you remember that phrase at all from Johnson? I do not. Okay, what Johnson and I don't. <laughs> the reason I asked is that I actually forgot the exact phrase. But what he said is that uh, he could pretty much get a white person to do anything. He could steal a dollar or anything from them by just putting them in the black context, if you will. In other words, to say, well, at least you're not black. The president, Johnson, said that. And, and in effect, that sort of, a, that sort of correlates with what, what you're saying, still being in existence with a large portion of that population today. After all, 70-something 70, 70 thousand voted for Donald Trump, for Donald Trump right? Explain, explain that. Yes, exactly. I mean, there's really not so much to explain. President Johnson being from the South, being a Southern senator, he understood his constituency better than everyone else. And he was willing, honestly, just to use that knowledge of his constituency to rise to power. And when he supported the passage of the Civil Rights Act, he also knew what Democrats would be giving up for a generation that, oh, the moment I sign this, all those Southern white Democrats are gonna be Republicans. And he made that choice to do so anyway, due to pressure from the civil rights movement. Again, it's like, we have to understand that the way the, the work of politics in this nation is not to black personhood, Democrat versus Republican, it's white people, white supremacy versus black personhood. And that white supremacy, while it has its permanent home in the Republican party, you do tend to see it in a lot of leftist politics and the Democrats as well. You do see it in the race blindness of Bernie Sanders. You do see this in a lot of Rose Twitter who emphasize a class versus race proposition and in a way also choose to silence the voices of black personhood that would uplift the entire party. You have that conversation right now, for example, of the Secretary of State, Pete, I don't know what his last name is, replacing Pete Kamala Buttigieg. Harris on Pete Buttigieg replacing Kamala Harris on the Democratic presidential ticket or vice presidential ticket in 2024, despite Black people being instrumental to Joe Biden defeating Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary. We are seen as the bargaining chip of the Democrats and the Republicans. They would rather just see us silence or they'll just honestly see us dead based off their current behavior and statements. So it's this constant climate of animus that political that Black people have to navigate. And Zelina Maxwell talks a lot about that in her book, The End of White Politics, how we are that bargaining chip and how it damages democratic politics. Well, I mean, uh, dem let, let, me, let me give you a, a caveat here because I just wrote about this a few weeks ago. And that is, I said, uh, watch the similarity between the Affordable Care Act and the Build Back Better. In other words, it was never Republicans who actually stopped the actuation of these particular policies. We always had the stooge from the plutocracy to come in and do it. Now, you, you added a, the racial component to it. Now, I, you said something very important, and I, and I think people need to understand that because I am, uh, I, a, lot of, a lot of people would hear what you say and, and consider you a black radical. And by the way, let me be clear here. I don't consider you a black radical. I consider you someone that is plain spoken and not only plain spoken 
but don't bite the words. I mean, I, I say a lot of I say a lot of things differently, but you don't bite your words. But that remove that does not remove the truity from what what you're saying. And here here is a, an important issue. When it comes to uh, the way we take a look at Joe Manchin, we take a look at cinema. We know their population. They're, they're not from a, a state or represent a group of people that are mostly minorities, uh, but still they are the ones that are willing to object to policies that would better the people in their states. My question to you then is the following. Is that, in this case, is that anti-Black or is that pro-protecting the plutocracy? It is definitely anti-Black because any protection of the American plutocracy is going to be anti-Black because of the nature of capital. We were brought to this nation to be the raw materials of capital. Our skins, our scarred backs, Egberto. They were used to finance mortgages. They were used to harvest sugar, used to harvest tobacco, used to harvest rice, used to harvest cotton. And that position has really not changed where white supremacy draws its power and its money from Black personhood. Now with Manchin, he is definitely anti-Black. And that's, I actually wrote about that in one of my newsletters, Black on Both Sides. He lives in an idiosyncratic Southern state. It's the only Southern state without a significant Black population due to both the history of the Civil War in which Western Virginia, very mountainous, not really made for plantations, right? Separated from Virginia to remain a slaveholding state in the Union. And then over time as well, right? The black population of the state has severely been reduced. So you like to hear a lot about coals and stuff like that. But again, black people are the defenders of democracy. We have not been a majority or a significant minority in that Southern state. And that does reflect Joe Manchin's politics, in which case he feels comfortable as a Democrat saying racially coded things like means testing for stimulus funds and such like that. So to me, there is anti-Blackness and whatever whiteness does because whiteness is a response to Blackness and you cannot consider white behavior and white culture and white politics without considering how it's completely arrayed against Black personhood. Now, let me ask you a question. How do we work toward solving this issue as one country? So I guess to me, it was like, I have two answers for that. One, I do consider myself an Afro-pessimist. So to me, I'm not sure if this is going to be something that we can really permanently resolve, that there's never going to be a day unless we magically get reparations where we can say we have solved the race problem of America. The race problem of America here since 1619 and it will probably be here to America no longer exists. So it's something that we do have to manage. I think to me, people always ask like, what does allyship look like? And my argument is that we should not be looking for allyship. We should be looking for black leadership to solve the nation's problems. Because when black people, when we do get the solutions that we want, it uplifts everyone. The Civil Rights Act was not just simply for black people. It also promoted more equality for women, for our Latinx population, for our indigenous population. And that many of the freedom struggles that we have here in this nation is configured on the black freedom struggles. Furthermore, and again, this goes back to what Charles Blow made, and he made this point in his latest book, um, The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. There has to be a way to achieve black power and sever it from white allyship. White allyship will always hold black progress to white redemption. We will do this if we feel good, we will do this if it frees us from the shackles of race. 
Black people should not consider the inner lives of white people when advocating and agitating for what it means. So Charles Blow offered a novel solution that every black person, no matter where they come from, African-American immigrants or descendants of immigrants should move down south, form a majority of the population in the south. <laughs> I, I saw that, yes. yes. And therefore, we would have sent enough representatives and senators and control enough governor's mansions and state houses to force conversation on our agenda, which will be equitable school funding, which would be rebuilding black infrastructure, which will be reparations. To me, those are solutions that I like, because again, it foregoes the story of white redemption, which is not a story black person is interested in. We just want to get free. And to me, that provides the most expedient way of doing that. And a sense of reverse, a reverse, um, a reverse great migration. You know, you are one of the most plain spoken, uh, persons that I've, I think I've interviewed on this type of issue altogether. In other words, uh, I remember in, in some of the discussions, you said one of the things that you don't allow is for, for, for the statements that you want to say to be edited out. And what I told you and I told everybody else is on politics done right, everybody's point of view is heard. And that is on, not only is everybody's point of view is heard, but I, I want every point of view to be listened to. Um, I have a very large white audience. Uh, what would you tell this particular audience of mine as far as how to, uh, you don't believe in allies. Exactly what do you believe in and what position should they take? I believe in black power and I believe that black power should be the leadership of the democratic politics. Because again, our track record shows and when black people do achieve their specific policy aims, it benefits all. Americans. And what I would again say to your white allies is like, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what they think about me, unless they're going to like cash at me some money, in which case it's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to change my view, but I would prefer $100 over $50. You know, it's like, I, I, I got a seven day care, a thousand a month. That's a lot of money. To burn, so. But what I would say though, is that when people ask what justice and reparations and equity looks like, have we had an all black Senate? Have we had an all black house of representatives? Have we had a black president? Have we had all three at the same time? No, then we've got some work to do in regards to writing the scales of history towards justice because we've had all white federal governments and all white state governments for centuries and centuries of American history. And when I focus black personhood, there is enough political diversity within black personhood that is also concerned for our liberation that we can have those robust debates. Think of woke. We have black socialists in woke. We have black Marxists in woke. We have black capitalists in woke. I don't know where cryptocurrency falls in any of that. <laughs> I don't, I don't know understand either. crypto. Yeah, but we have black cryptocurrency fanatics in woke. And you see us come together because we all believe in black freedom. The black capitalists will make an argument, hey, we need to invest in stocks and blah, 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 and reinvest in communities. We will be free that way. You have the Marxists. We need to overthrow the, the, the bourgeoisie and the Lupin proletariat rise. But that's how we get free. You have Black socialists. We need to make sure we have a more distributive. We'll get free. And you have the people like Black cryptocurrencies. We need to invest in Bitcoin. We'll get free. I don't know how. But at the same time, we all come together with that common goal. And ultimately, the solutions that we're going to generate, they're going to benefit everyone. And if a white ally has a hard problem following Black leadership or feeling they need to speak for Black leadership, that's them evincing their anti-Blackness. And it's like, I ain't got nothing to say to you.
Okay, let me let me let me now do a, a challenge as far as pragmatism and the ability to get things done. Um, uh, how do you think power would be attained? I mean, uh, Kurt, I mean, uh, Blow said, Blow talked about black people moving to the South and becoming a majority in the South. Um, whatever we, whatever the, the possibilities are. Uh, black people in this country make up about 13%. That is a mathematical reality of, of Black people in this country, right? Um, mm-hmm. And earlier in our discussion, you said something that, uh, that, that for anybody who wants to listen to your commentary and believe that, uh, that you are a racist as opposed to you've lived through uh, the American reality, have to first an- analyze a ver- one of the very first statements that you made, which was race was an invented thing whiteness was an invented thing but that invented thing has caused a whole lot of harm now uh my my thing is the practical i i i believe in 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 how do we attain practical solutions pragmatic solutions and one of the things that i do in in trying to put people together etc is to ask the question how are we going to get it done um Blow had that idea, and I read the idea, and I chuckled because I, the number 13% still came to mind, right? Mm-hmm. So um, what's the alternative to uh, – I'll be frank. I believe what, – what I believe is everybody should be uh, treated equitably. Everybody should have equal power, and I absolutely believe reparations are uh, – in order, not only in order, but represent rep- reparations are owed, and we need to make create the, balance the imbalance that we have here. That was created by white supremacy. I believe all of that. Practically speaking, how is that attained? I think exactly what you're saying that reparations needs to be the central political policy of Democrats. So I hear what you're saying about pragmatism. Thirteen right? percent. No, keep that number in your head. Thirteen percent. I get what you're hearing then about us only being 13% of the population, but again, reparations, which is one of the big policy black of black goals, would benefit this entire nation no matter where you fall yes, in your political beliefs. And white allies understand that. Like if you are a black capitalist or if you are a white ally who believes in capitalism, reparations will be continued, sustained stimulus into the black community that provides business opportunities for the entire nation. If you are a socialist, a white ally who is a socialist, reparations will provide that redistribution of wealth, which will close so many of the gaps that socialism would want to close. If you are a Marxist, reparations will return so much capital and thus resources to the Lupin proletariat, that exclusively and perpetually oppressed class, right, where that does not get to control the capital. And if you're in crypto, a lot of Black people will probably buy Bitcoin with reparations. Again, <laughs> I, don't under- I don't understand crypto. I don't want I'm making fun of it, but it is something that, you know, as a thinker, it completely befuddles me. So again, the pragmatic solution for white allies is to nurture the Black leadership and to get their other allies to do so as well. It's not our job to manage white perception of Black leadership. It is the white allies' job to manage white perception of Black leadership and then make sure that they're following the lead of the Black leaders who are doing the hard work locally at the state level and at the federal level as well. So I think to me, it was like, it's a mix. Reparations is that pragmatic radical solution, but the radicalism are the white allies actually leading in and making sacrifices for black leadership. 
Okay, so I mean, I, I, I think I think there's some con some convergence there because uh, you you brought the the white allies right back into the fold, right? Mm -hmm. I did, I did, and again, it was like I I try not to spend too much time thinking about the inner lives and, and such like that. To me, it's just a question of power and influence, what we can and what we cannot do with the resources here. Thirteen percent, yeah, that might be a small numerical number in proportion to one hundred. But we've also been here for about 400 years. So to me, I think less about the percentage and more about the historical power that Black personhood has in the United States. Because normally if 13% was a number that white supremacy did not feel threatened by, they would not be working so hard to stamp out all of our accomplishments. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, we're coming close to the close, but I want to give a little, a, a quick little soliloquy here uh, to tell you a little bit about my thoughts, right? Uh, first of all, when you acknowledge that there isn't a race, agreed. When you acknowledge the, the issue about white supremacy, agreed. Um, I, I take a slightly different stance than many others. And, um, and it, it, it even goes beyond Bernie Sanders' stance, a whole, a whole lot of you know, Blacks, or not a whole lot. Some Black people had a, a particular issue with, um, with Bernie Sanders. And, and, and I'm going to ask you to comment on this before the last question. But I think it's all a game, okay? I think there were a small number, well, not I think, I know there's a small number of people who created the nation. And in order to hold on to power, created the gradation of people. And in creating the gradation of people, uh, yes, was born white supremacy. Because again, remember that fact that, well, remember, you ain't black, so uh, you're okay. My contention is, and this is why I give everybody the benefit of the doubt i give uh, the reason i give everybody the benefit of the doubt is i first try to educate uh if 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 you grew up in the in a white society where you saw yourself as different than others and just like if you grew up in a black society that that was meant that made you believe you were inferior or you grew up in a black society that uh you know whatever the case is you're codified by your environment. I grew up in, a, in Central America. I came over here with, with, I came over here with beliefs that I, I didn't, to put it bluntly, I didn't know how crazy things could be over here in America. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll simply be blunt about that, okay? So, so my contention is, and, and again, I am not asking you to be uh, the way I am. We, we, I think we are both needed. I put it bluntly. In fact, I learn a lot from people like yourself. Um, I want to first educate everybody. When I say educate, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. I want, and after I give them the benefit, and I don't think too many people have done that. And, and let, me, let me point out something that, and I came from something we discussed in Woke today. I asked everybody in Atlanta, those of you that are working in Atlanta, please take a look at the leaders of Atlanta. And let's take a look at who's hurting uh, the you know black folk in atlanta i also ask folks to do the same thing uh we want reparations how many of the cbc is out there fighting for reparations you are but our leaders aren't you know so when we talk about black leadership the black leadership that i would like to see are young folk like you who actually know what's happening but a lot of what we have and what we've had have failed the entire country, not just us. Because as you said, if we do well, 
the whole country does well. So I want your thought on that. And the last question I always ask is, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? So to respond to like your first question, I think that the difference like with me educating people, I don't see myself as an educator. Again, mm -hmm. my vision for my writing is that I'm a creator and a custodian of the stories of Black personhood. I want a world where Blackness will never perish from the earth. And to me, it's my job is to write the articles, to write the books, to find and mentor the writers that are writing our folklore so that where we have our stories of survival and living and living in the West that I can pass down to my baby boy. And I was like, hey, look, look what this generation did. And let me teach you about what the previous generations did. If white people really want to contribute to that and read my stuff and educate it and be educated and, you know, put some coins in my pocket, I'm fine with that. But I'm also impartial to that outcome. And that's what really allows me to wake up every morning with excitement and joy, releasing myself from the burden of having to educate and thus redeem white people, and then doing the work of preserving Black culture, no matter where I find it in the world. So I guess to me, it was like, again, the response to the first question is just about that. And again, just the second thing is just, you know, what I wish you would ask about me, um, asking more about how I won the Medium Writers Challenge, because from the day they announced it, I said I was going to win it. I won it. And there was a lot of intentionality about me just really writing that crap and hopefully trying to parlay that to a book deal. If any of your listeners have a book deal or can give me a book deal, one, <laughs> I'm mad you have, one, I'm mad you haven't gotten in touch with me yet. Two, I forgive you. Three, DM me so we can talk about getting my books out to the world. But yeah, I would love to talk more about how I won that challenge. Al H. Harris, winner of the humongous Medium Writers Challenge, $10,000. Look, it was my pleasure to have you on Politics Done Right. And look, please, please keep that passion. We need people who are unabashedly bold in the way they speak. We don't all have to speak the same. We don't have to all believe the same, but we sure as hell need to make sure that we are all heard. Thank you so kindly for being on Politics Done Right. Thank you for having us, and I'll catch you at the next welcome meeting, Alberto. Absolutely. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.